Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay welcome special guest Sean Smith to review the album EDC by Satchel. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Benici, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, how are you this evening? Yeah, I'm relieved. Yeah, I'm relieved I'm re- too. <laughs> because uh, we usually have to make up all the stuff about the bands that we talk about because they're so hard to find and uh, so difficult to get on the line and talk to. And tonight we don't have to do that. Yeah, usually we're, re- we're reviewing some obscure Australian band that put out one album in 1992 <laughs> and none of their members are in bands anymore and there was never a internet review for them anywhere and you have one line in a Wikipedia entry. But tonight, we don't have to do that. No. We can get the, we can get the information firsthand because we have a special guest with us tonight. I'm super excited and I know you are too. We have from the bands, I, I'm going to list all these bands, it's going to take a while, from... <laughs> Brad, Satchel, Pigeonhead, All Hail the Crown, From the North. That's just the first half of the bands. We have Mr. Sean Smith with us. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on. How are you this evening? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So I mentioned all those bands that you were in. Did you have any time to do anything else from between like 1992 and 1997? Or were you pretty much just always in a recording studio or on tour? Oh, well, there's a lot more free time than you'd think. I'm not working all the time, and then I wasn't then either. And usually one thing wasn't going on at the same time as the other, so... Yeah, we have some, uh, you know, we're going to get into the history of Satchel specifically, because we're, we're going to be talking about the album EDC, which um, came out in 1994. But there's some overlap between the various bands. Uh, Reagan Hagar played in both, played drums, or plays drums in both Brad and Satchel. Yeah. So, and then he was also in Malfunction. Mm-hmm. Were there any other members that crisscrossed besides yourself and Reagan in the in the various bands that you played in? Um, later, uh, we well, uh, a guy was uh, had uh, that replaced the bass player on our first Satchel record. He joined Satchel for the second record, and he then he also joined Brad up until a few years ago. So that was the only other crossover. Okay. But Brad, Brad didn't really exist. We just recorded for three weeks and then made that record, and then we weren't really like a band, you know, rehearsing all the time or anything until later in the 90s. And that's the first album, Shame, that came out in 93? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what, I tell you what, let's do a little bit of the history so that everybody is aware of um, the backstory on Satchel. History of the band. And if I get anything wrong, jump in, because okay. the first uh, time Satchel got together was in late 1991. Um, mm-hmm. There were the original members were Reagan Hagar and drums we mentioned, John Hogue is it that you pronounce mm-hmm. the last okay, on guitar, yeah. and then Corey Kane on bass. Yeah. And then the first album didn't come out until 1994. Yeah. So what was the I'm going to ask a question here since we're at this point. Why was there such a, a gap between the band forming and then an album coming out? Was, was it because of Brad and Pigeonhead putting out albums well, in 93? Uh, truthfully, the band, we started, and we just started playing gigs within three weeks. So by, I think our first gig was on uh, 
we played a New Year's Eve thing. And we just did tons of stuff for the next six months. And by the end of that six months, I was, uh, I didn't think the band was that great. Our songwriting wasn't that great. I'm just, for me, I, you know, there was hints of something good there. And, you know, I think we made this cassette that everyone, we lost that we wish we had. But it, uh, there was, you know, there was something there. But I was starting to be a little disillusioned. And then uh, Sub Pop gave, uh, put me and Steve Fisk together and gave us money to start recording Pigeonhead. So it was summer in 92. We spent recording first Pigeon Head, and I probably dabbled, you know, was rehearsing with Satchel that whole time, but it wasn't really progressing. And then we did the, me and Regan went and did Brad in, in October 92. And I think me doing Pigeon Head record and the Brad record started to teach me how to write songs more that I didn't know before. And, and then we just spent kind of, a lot of messing around, you know, and uh, we were just a kind of a band that just got together and, you know, smoked pot and and played for fun. And and so, but by around, once the Brad record came out uh, and I sort of got us a deal with the people that, with Epic that put out, put out Brad and sort of without anyone hearing any songs and I just kind of got it in there and we spent the summer of 90 three just recording we had a a track next door uh our friend barrett jones had and uh we just started recording and working and and uh so we didn't start making making an album until uh the, you know the fall of 93 so did you ever have any um you said that you had some doubts about the band did you ever consider maybe doing a solo record or using sort of connections with uh with epic to do something other than satchel or well i i um personally in back in 90 i had gotten a demo deal with a uh, cbs which became sony and i was a solo artist to begin with but i kind of just wanted to try a band because uh i didn't want to be a uh, you know michael bolton or something so <laughs> um, <laughs> um but uh I just made it really, it was a loyalty to Regan because we had initially started playing music together back when, in 88. And so we'd always had kind of a dream of having something, having a band and getting mm -hmm. it together. So really it was my loyalty to him that made me make the decision to, to stay with the band and maybe use what I'd learned in making Pigeonhead and Brad and try and make that band happen more. And I think, you know, that it worked out, but it was, it was kind of tough. So you were able to get a deal for Satchel with Sony without Sony actually hearing anything? Yeah, because basically my demo tape was the Brad Shame album, you know. Okay. So I was basically being signed off that. And then I was asked, what did I want to do? And I wanted to do Satchel. And huh. then when we, get in, when we get into the record label situations, it was... You know, it was difficult because, you know, our a &R guy, once we were, you know, signed and working on stuff and I was sending him stuff and he's like, uh, you know, if you're familiar with the Shame album, you know, there's Buttercup, Nice mm -hmm. Ballad. Mm -hmm. 
he was like, oh, yeah. you know, where's Buttercup? You know, where's, you know, what is this stuff you're sending me? What is this crazy psychedelic band you, you have that I would have never signed? <laughs> yeah. You know? So, and that, you know, that, uh, that phone call, I wrote Suffering and Anger after that. So. Oh, um, really? So it, it, yeah, I said, oh, you want that? Here's that, fucker. <laughs> so, and then you know it turns out to be such a nice song that I was actually kind of angry. Oh but, man, I love you know, that. I, I, I was, I was, I was, you know, idealistic. I guess. I mean, I didn't know. I just, I didn't know what. It was my first time with a major label, and that was my first real interaction with it. And it was, it was tough, you know, because they're telling you what to do and, and expect things of you that I don't know. I didn't naively didn't you know know or understand i guess so that wasn't like dealing with with sub pop sub pop was more hands-off when you were recording the first pigeon well, yeah and I, you know yeah i mean no we were yeah completely hands-off but i also had more of a veteran you know record guy in my partner steve fisk you know he right all the screaming trees and he had his own label at one you know his own indie before and you know he was more of a vet and i learned a lot from him just so um, we catch everybody up. So after, in 2004, the EDC album comes out. Two years later, the 94. family... Or 94, yeah. 94 yeah. comes out. Two years later in 1996, the family comes out. Yeah. Different bass player. Uh, Mike Berg's on bass for that one. And then the the band goes on hiatus after that, pretty much. Well, we, we broke up. Okay. I mean, the, the guitar player at the end of a long tour, long for us was 10 weeks. It wasn't like a year, but he, uh, the day before uh, the last show of the tour, or the second to last show of the tour in Chicago, he had a flip out and flew home. Huh. One of the guys in one of the other bands on the tour filled in for a couple shows and we got it done. But. So did you know in 96, I'm assuming this was in 96, Mm-hmm. That did you know that the following year you'd be putting out records with Brad and Pigeonhead, or was that stuff like um, you got back and you were like, now I need to work well, on other stuff? That's right. Pigeonhead, I think that record came out in I think January of '97. I think. Yeah. Right. Well, that is another story because we I, we recorded that in August '95. Oh. And uh, Sub Pop had a grand plan <laughs> and it involved like a lot of time set up and then the guy that was really behind it the A kind of and R guy he quit and then it just didn't come out till you know, a year and a half later so okay uh, and then Brad happened because Bachel fell apart and then Stoney said he wanted to do another one you know it was okay you know so then uh, 2005, former or uh, four unreleased tracks are released on the Brad versus Satchel compilation, uh, split between the two bands. And then in 2010, the new album Heartache and Honey came out. Are there plans to do anything in the future? I- I've heard rumors of new Brad and possibly Pigeonhead coming soon. Well, well, we have a we have a new Pigeonhead, but it's it it was recorded. 98% of it in, in 2000 and was aborted. Oh. Um, and just had trouble getting someone to put it out. And then uh, Brad has a new record coming out in April. 
Satchel has a show tomorrow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, you know, we just haven't, you know, we made a record, that Heartache and Honey record, and then, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been doing other, I've been doing Brad, I've been working on a Brad record for a year, so. Right. And Satchel's a little different, it's a little, practicing is really loud, and I'm, I don't know, it's different, it's a lot, it's, you know, it's a different monster. Well, it's sonically, it's different than from Brad. Yeah, and we, and we did we did two years. Uh, we you know after we worked on that Heartache and Honey record. You know we're not you know there's no money you know that kind of thing so there's no gotcha. money what, what do you do so okay that pretty much gets us caught up on the history. Uh, there have been a bunch of other albums by Brad by Pigeonhead. We've mentioned a couple of them. I wanted to mention the All Hell the Crown record. That was one I was oblivious to for a while. And then Jay pointed out, I got to say, I I really like that record. I was actually, uh, my wife gets mentioned a lot on this podcast because she's the the smarter one of the two of us. She's actually a music educator. And she's she's a fan and she heard it and she doesn't like heavy music, quote unquote. And she was like, this is amazing. And I was going to sort of, draw a line because to me that sounds like the heaviest that your songwriting has been since this first satchel record mm-hmm. is that a fair comparison in terms of what you were doing songwriting wise well yeah and and you know all hail the crown like i i didn't have to i didn't do any i just uh the, the band cut the tracks and i went in and did the vocals so huh. i didn't have to i didn't have to arrange anything or or you know that made that real easy for me and, and and it was really good, and I really loved all the riffs, and like it was just real easy and inspiring to go in and sing on that thing. The guitar playing on that album is is pretty incredible. Yeah, it, it's you know, it's that Kevin Wood is Andy Wood's brother, you know, from Mother Love Bone. Mm-hmm. And he oh, was yeah. in, Kevin was in Malfunction with Regan. Has he done yeah. anything since between those two bands? I sort of lost track of him after Mother Love Bone, and then this. You mean Kevin Wood? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kevin wasn't in Mother Love Bone. He was in Malfunction. And then oh, I'm sorry, was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he was in uh, Fire Ants. Okay. And uh, Devil Head, I believe both of them were with his brother Brian singing. Oh, okay. Devil Head was, Devil Head was on, uh, they put out a couple records on Stone's Loose Groove label. That was, Brad was on, too, for one record. And, right. He's a, you know, he's a brilliant guitar player. Yeah, it's very, very original uh, playing. Yeah, his riffs are, are stellar. I mean, he comes up, and a couple of the riffs were, a couple of the songs were also, the riffs came from uh, the bass player, Rob Day. And uh, these guys are all, all three of them are from Bainbridge Island, where Regan's from, too. So it's kind of a Bainbridge Island uh, heaviness. <laughs> <laughs> cool, yeah. I th- let's get into the album, because... That's that's what we're all about here is is dissecting yeah. albums. I have a dumb question to start out with. The album's called EDC. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Well, the guys, the other three, they called it the you know Eternal Dank Coven or Expert Diamond Cutters or they had all kinds of. They were like dabbling in graffiti, and uh, <clears throat> they also dabbled in skateboarding. They could barely skate, but um. <laughs> um <laughs> They, uh, uh, that was their deal. They named our rehearsal space EDC, and so it really has a lot of meaning. 
I thought it was a chord progression, and I was looking for a song that had the chord progression E, D, and C on the album, and I couldn't find one. So I'm glad that's cleared up. <laughs> I never. I don't How think much... I ever thought. Of, I don't think I ever thought of that. But that totally seems like logical. How much time did you waste doing that? <laughs> <laughs> You'll never get that back now. The 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 one thing I noticed about the album, Sean, was that the the production credits are really all over the place. What what's the story behind that, and how did that happen? We had a rehearsal space that was uh, had a door in the middle, and one side was us, and then the bathroom was on the other side of the door. So, and that, and that side was an eight track studio that uh, Barrett Jones, who moved up to Seattle with Dave Grohl, and uh, as his drum guy. They were friends, and uh, Barrett uh, had an eight-track studio, and he, sh- you know, it was Dave and him had this built this studio over there. And uh, so Barrett, uh, Barrett went on, you know, he he did the first Foo Fires record. That, that's his main thing he did. But uh, he, uh, you know, just ran the mics up into our space, and we started demoing in the summer of '94. Uh, I mean '93. And so a lot of the tracks are from that, from those A-track demos that we oh. had tried. We, we were, then we were like, okay, we did these demos and then this producer came and then we went out and spent a month in a studio and it really didn't go that great. And uh, we ended up using a lot of the early stuff for the record. Made it sound really unique in my mind. That, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the other things that's kind of an overall question on the album that Jay and I were, were talking about is obviously there's a lot of references to the res- to the movie Reservoir Dogs. There's the song titles and then also the, the actual clips that were played. The, we've heard different things. We've heard that it's a concept album. We've heard it's not a concept album. Mm-hmm. We've heard it's loosely based. My question is, did you guys have to pay for the samples? Uh, yeah, we, I, we did have to pay. Okay. Are, are you, are you um, still paying for the samples? No, you pay, you pay. It was a one-time, one-time oh, okay. thing. Okay. Um, another, th- again, uh, Satchel was kind of like three guys that were, I don't know, I was not usually involved in the sort of the hijinks as much. So, you know, while I was in working on some vocals, they were in the TV room watching Reservoir Dogs, and they started, I think we just had, you know, when you write a song, you come up with a new idea, and we mark it down, and we were naming some songs, Pink, Blue, whatever. And then they were watching Reservoir Dogs and like the other three guys were like, hey man, let's, you know, put these clips in. So then on this little demo we made for ourselves, they put the clips in and then, uh, you know, because, you know, and then we, so we called the songs Mr. Pink and Mr. Blue. And they didn't have anything to do with uh, anything except it kind of sounded cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then we well, got to do it, I think it was $5,000 or something. You guys were okay. kind of ahead of the curve because... That was only a, like a year and a half. I think Reservoir Dogs came out in 92, and it really didn't catch on. It was kind of a cult film at the time, but I think it wasn't until Pulp Fiction came out that everybody sort of went back and, and watched that movie. At least I didn't. I didn't know who he was in 92. Yeah, I um, remember it, I, it was kind of, it was a thing here. People knew, people, you know, people were going to see it. In the, I saw it in the theater, so it was known in Seattle, I guess, among our circle, I guess. Let's start out with track one, Mr. Brown. Mm-hmm. 
it's an interesting lead-off track, and I've noticed this on a couple of the albums that you've been involved in. That it's it starts out slow with a with a kind of a slow burn. Is that a conscious thing to start the albums? For the most, I think I can only think of Brad Interiors as maybe one of the few albums that starts out with a with a faster song. Do you prefer to start with something slower and well, then build from I mean, there? I, I'm not sure how conscious it is, except maybe it's just whatever the, the instinct is at the time. I think Brown, we were starting shows with it, maybe, because mm-hmm. it just has a big opening and boom, you know? Right. And I guess I never really thought of it as being slow that much. Uh, but it's not, it's not overly thought out or anything. Although, you know, Buttercup started off Shame, and that's because it was just kind of the best song, and you know, I don't know why we did it that way. Yeah, you put if you think it's the best song, you put the hits first, I guess. You go with the Motown mentality. But um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think we started the shows with Brown, and we just put it there. I think for our listeners who are who are going to listen to this album for the first time, you know, one of the things they're going to be, I think, um, they're going to notice and be attracted to first is is your voice. I mean, it's very distinctive. Um, I think it's one of the best voices of the last twenty years in rock. Um, but enough ass kissing. Um, <laughs> When you started singing, especially, you know, in the 90s, you know, your voice is very different than what a lot of people think of as, uh, you know, in 90s music. You know, did you realize that? Were you self-conscious about it? Was it, did you have any, like, pushback in terms of, you know, what your voice sounded like and how you sang? Or did everything go pretty smooth for you? Well, I, I, I guess I, I came from, uh, I didn't come from the 90s, so... Um, and I didn't, I, I can't, I was a Prince fan and a, you know, I, I had my metal, my, my sort of rock era, mm-hmm. 18, 19, 20. I, I worked through a lot of, uh, my rock stylings and, uh, you know, I had a phase, there's old recordings where, you know, I was going to see Alice in Chains all the time and I was doing, I, 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 and, and I worked through those you know I, I uh, you know sort of like it's just something I worked through if I would have been putting out records when I first was people were noticing me and you know I would have had some embarrassing I think I would have had some embarrassing moments <laughs> so, so there's you know, some recordings the time, out there but uh, no there's not there's only one that I found when my grandma just recently passed and she had a cassette I'd sent that I'd lost and it was from 88 yeah. and it's it embarrasses me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then by the time my first recording, real recording of a record was the first Pigeonhead, and I was just at a point of a low point, and I completely just went for it and released and found some whatever it is you find that and uh, divine intervention or something. Yeah. I worked. I worked to get where I got. You know, by the time I was 26, I, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't. When I, you know, some guys, are, you know, are great at 16 or 20 or something. I wasn't. So. Well, it's that's especially, I think, cool to hear in the sort of American Idol society we live in, where you know you're supposed to have developed as an artist by the age of 16 and be a phenomenal singer. Otherwise, you have no music career. It's cool to hear that. You know, there was a time when somebody could make mistakes and, you know, develop from there and sort of find themselves. And then I'm assuming by this point you were completely confident in what what you sounded like and what you wanted to do. 
Florida, you know, I, yeah. I mean, you know, and also I had a, I only took a couple singing lessons, but the lady told me I was a really good mimic, and I, I think, you know, I mimicked, and and then I stopped mimicking. So I think that's where the I learned by mimicking, and then you you stop. I don't know. It's it's a it's a process though. Mm-hmm. Uh, track two, Equilibrium. a couple of technical questions i guess you would say uh, about this song well i guess one of the first thing i wanted to ask is you're credited as playing guitar on this record is is this one of the songs because in the first couple of songs there isn't really what, what you're kind of known for is is piano and keyboards and there isn't really a lot on the first i think like three songs so were you playing guitar on these first couple tracks yeah the first i didn't play on the third one but I, yeah i played on the first and second one Okay, because yeah, the fir- the first song has like it sounds like there's at least three different distinct guitar tracks on that yeah. one, and then on the second one, there's multiple tracks, and it sounds like there's an ebo possibly on the on the equilibrium. I don't think so. I, I kind of think I'm the only one that played guitar on it. There's okay. some like crazy sustain going on. <laughs> some like almost violin style sustain on that song. Yeah, I'd have to pretty, listen again, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that played on it. And this is a song that you hear um, that you guys do a lot on the album. You, I think you affect the drums, like you distort them. Um, yeah. What, was that something you guys intended to do from the get-go, or were you just kind of screwing around and thought, hey, that sounds cool, and just left it that way? Or Yeah, I don't, I don't know. However that, was reco- that particular drum was recorded, I, I don't really remember. Um, I kind of remember them doing it, but I don't remember Equilibrium being that distorted. It's just like a little bit of a sort of a weird effect on it. Um, yeah, I'm sure in the mixing I, they probably did that. Uh, okay, cool. You mentioned um, Prince a minute ago, which I think has been an artist that, especially when I was l- listening to the Skeleton Keys albums, mm-hmm. I can hear a lot of those like early Prince records where it's just him and kind of, kind of a drum machine. It's not as the big produced stuff like on, on Purple Rain and the later albums. Was that a primary influence? Because I, I also hear... You know stuff like Stevie Wonder and and a lot of the soul stuff from the you know late '60s and and '70s especially. Um, was that also stuff that you were into? Well, I was into it, but I think Prince was the primary motivator towards the, the you know drum machine, simple songwriting type things. You know, I, I mean Stevie Wonder. I guess I could grasp Prince. Stevie Wonder's a little harder to reach for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's a little um, in, insane sometimes with the and, with his playing. I mean, 
ultimately I just, you know, first started, I got a drum machine when I was 18 and I first started kind of writing songs with a drum machine and, and you know, all I had was a drum machine and keyboard and maybe a guitar or something. That's just the way I, I work if I'm just by myself at home or something. You mentioned taking uh, vocal lessons. Did you take any piano or guitar lessons? No. I mean, I, you, know, you know, when you're 12, I took a few guitar lessons, but they, they wouldn't show me. They just wanted me to play. And I had a little lamb, and I wanted to know what the <laughs> guys were doing up on the neck and what kind yeah. of chords are those. And, man, if the dude would have just told me, I'd probably, you know, but yeah. I quit. I was the same way, and I heard an interview with Stephen Van Zandt today on Howard Stern, and he said the exact same thing. He was like, when we were kids, they didn't teach us how to play cool songs. They told you taught you how to play technique and traditional songs, and now you go to take guitar lessons, and they're like, yeah, what do you want to learn? You want to learn Black yeah, Sabbath? Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. yeah, it's very different now than it was then. <laughs> yeah, I, I put it down for a while. I was into dance music in high school, and then picked it up again, got back into rock. And- well, that's a good segue to, into track three, uh, taste it, which is probably, I think, in terms of guitar riffs on this album, is probably one of the heaviest on the whole album. I'm assuming then you didn't play guitar, that that was John Hogue? Yeah. Okay. Was that something that they had the song and you just, like you said, with All Hell the Crown, where you just sort of came up with the lyrics over top of it? Or was that more like a collaborative? That would have been one where they, the band did the, the other guys did the, put the track together and then I sang on it. It, it kind of has a uh, Alice in Chains uh, bass lift feel to it. Yeah. Did you have any, t- <laughs> was there any point where you thought about maybe going back to that vocal style? Well, no. I mean, for for taste, uh, I don't know. I mean, I do it different. We still do it. It's a mainstay, but uh, oh, cool. I do it differently. I think I do it better, and I I don't do some of the higher stuff because it doesn't translate. It's harder to do live, mm. and that also had two versions, and we've all realized that the first version was better, and I changed the lyrics and everything, but we lost the other version. And, it was early stages of figuring shit out. Which most bands go through when they're mm-hmm. putting out their first record and doing their first recording, so that, that makes sense. Now, it is an interesting transition because track three is probably the heaviest, and then you move to track four, Trouble Come Down. Is that all you on that track in terms of like drum loop yeah. and then piano? And Was that something yeah. that you had written prior to Satchel and brought to the band, or was that during the writing of this album? No, that, that was when we were in the... In the studio, we we recorded it north of Seattle in a place called Bear Creek, and we were lived out there for a month. I just went in, and I, you know, we were working with this producer, and it it didn't work out. But he, you know, I had to try to trick him to do stuff because 
was kind of stubborn, and so I just, you know, if I would have told him, hey, I'm working up this song, I don't think he, he would have been against it, but I told him I'd already had it probably, you know, I got it together. And then I got the drum machine going. I said, oh, this is just a click track, because, you know, he wouldn't have let me do what I did with it. You know what I mean? It was that kind of vibe, like, oh, man. You know, right? if, if we had to think about it, it wasn't going to happen. He'd make me work it out and all that kind of crap. So I ran the drum machine through the thing, through a distortion, and played the music and sang on it, and then just you know, put it to bed. sounds like real drums that are just looped and then affected it's yeah a really the drum, cool drum machine sound. going through yeah it's going through this ensonic that i always wanted to have it's an ensonic rack mount thing that just had they made samplers at the time and stuff and i don't know if they still make stuff but they just had a really interesting distortions inside there in that box. yeah so that's all that box the sound of the drums yeah. there's no other Cool. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you run a drum machine just through a, a distortion pedal, guitar pedals, mm-hmm. and really cool stuff comes out. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, track five, uh, more ways than three. This is another one where I think the guitar stuff, sort of like with Equilibrium and Mr. Brown, it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of different tones. Is in reading the liner notes, it seems like stuff was recorded at at different times. We talked about earlier. Was the different tones simply a matter of you recording at different times? You weren't getting the same guitar tones and using different effects as opposed to like locking out a week and recording everything straight through? Or was it sort of more conscious, like we're going to definitely use this here and this here? Yeah, we didn't have, we weren't that together. Mr. Brown and Equilibrium and I think Tasted and some others were uh, more ways than three. We're all done in that, in that month when we were locked down at the studio. So we were just using whatever tones the producer thought, you know, he was he was kind of dialing things in. So it was whatever amps were there, I guess. Yeah, that was going to be my question. It was, were you guys like just basically using whatever equipment was around? I can't um, remember. I mean, I, I, yeah. I had a rig, but I don't, you know, I didn't, I didn't know much more than to just turn it on. Yeah. You know, I didn't. You know. This song reminds me a lot of uh, Mother Love Bone. Do you think that's fair? And and was Andy Wood an influence on you as a songwriter? Well, he was a huge influence on me, and uh, uh, he was my neighbor and friend as well. Oh. And um, I used to go. I used to record song him on my four track and record songs on my four track. And I sometimes did it with Mother Love Bone too. They'd get around him. I was the guy that had the four track, you know. <laughs> hey Sean, man, what are you doing? I'm coming over. <laughs> but 
but I learned a lot. That you know, talking and speaking of learning, you know, that 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 was huge to to uh, be able to do that and watch people write. That were these were guys that were my age, and they were just heads and tails above me. Like, you know. Anyways, uh, I don't know more ways than three. I don't. I never. I don't quite hear the love bone, but uh, there's something about the the guitar riff. The, the guitar yeah. work, it's sort of like a laid-back riff with sort of octave chords and stuff. It just reminded mm-hmm. me of, of their sort of feel and and, yeah. and that sort of... Even like you... Uh, I know this is a this is a poor comparison, but there's a lyric in there about uh, was it three-time champion? And it, when I hear you say that, I think of Stardog champion. Like there's just... Yeah, yeah, between yeah. that and the, and, the, and the chords, it like clicks in my head like, oh, wow, okay. I can hear mm-hmm. sort of a Mother Love Bone feel in this song. Yeah. Is that where you met? Uh, is that when you first met Stone? Yeah, well, I met Regan first, and then right after that, I met uh, me and Regan started a band, and then his rehearsal space was the Malfunction space, which was also the Green River, which turned into the Mother Love Bone space. So before I met everybody, I would hang out while Love Bone rehearsed. They were, I thought they were just great. Oh my God. Yeah, we often debate about, you know, if. If Mother Love Bone had continued, you know, if what had happened not, had not happened, what what would have that have done to the to the, the scene in Seattle? You know, would it have been heavier, darker bands, or would Mother Love Bone had gone on to be the biggest band? Malfunction documentary. I think Chris Cornell makes a really good point, essentially about that they were the band that was everybody looked to maybe bridge the gap between sort of the '80s and the '90s and between the pop metal stuff to what you know seattle was was doing and uh or when he died basically it's his sentiment was you know everybody was like well what the hell happens now like they were supposed to be the ones that were going to make it easy for us and now everything's changed so and i always think well what what if what if you know they might have got sucked into the the eight you know love might have got sucked into the 80s glam hole Mm -hmm. yeah that that warrant did you know, I, I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there, and and really, the band was kind of on a downward cycle by the end. There, I mean, it was something about the spark had something had happened to the spark. They hadn't written anything new. You know, the the last few shows were a little to get ready. I don't know. There was friction in the band. There was hmm. Andy was thinking about making a solo album, and you know, it's 
it might have imploded on the road anyways, you know, so. Right, right, right. Because it, it, it wasn't super healthy. Right. But Pearl Jam wouldn't have happened. So. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> and that's pretty amazing. good or bad, depending. No, but, you know, there would have been no Pearl Jam, and that's an interesting world. You know. It's a different world, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that, that, the blocks that could have moved, that maybe that would have, Maybe Nevermind would have never been made by right. I mean, so many things could have changed if if Love Bone would have if Andy hadn't died. Who knows what have, what would have happened? Yeah, it's an incredible story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it was hugely life changing for me. And as you know, just everyone involved that was friends with him, it was life changing. Right, it just changed our lives. You know. Mm-hmm. It, it, his death was really impacting on, on those that were around him because he was such a beacon, you know, to, to all yeah. of us. He was our, he was the beat in a way, the, the, the real deal. If, Absolutely. You know what I mean? He was, he was something else live, like, he was really a beautiful artist. Anyway. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's a, a thing that a lot of people who, even who lived through the '90s and they were in their 20s and they were listening to all that music, they don't really know the story as you know as as their idea of Seattle is Pearl Jam and Nirvana and mm-hmm. Alice in Chains. They don't really know. I I, I was lucky. I got to see um, there was a documentary that came out in the '90s called Hype, mm-hmm. and it kind of gave you a much different picture of Seattle. Have you did you ever see that? I kind of avoided it, but, but okay. there was there was there was two camps. There was two distinct camps, and then there was other camps, of course, too. But there was because I was uh, involved with sub pop, and I was also involved with with you know the Mother Lobo Nelson and Chains world. Um, those worlds didn't inter intermix very much. You know, the sub pop people were college indie kind of you know. I want to say richer kids, you know, like the kids that can afford to go and be deadheads kind of kids, you know, it's like, but people that went to school and stuff, and then the low bone guys were people that didn't go to college, you know what I mean? And, and it was more, more of the rock scene. And, yeah. uh, they were, they were specifically different camps and they didn't really intermingle that much. You know, mud honey was in between the two. I don't know. I mean, we all, you know, I went to Tad shows. I went to everything, but there was just a sub pop kind of looked down on, say, the, you know, Pimple the Dog record or, you know, Alice in Chains. It, it was kind of looked down upon in a way. Not by everyone, That's... but it, that there was definitely two different sensibilities in, in one place, which was really amazing, you know. Yeah, and, and all sides had validity and great music, you know. I thought that was one of the weird things about the '90s. Is I think it was one of the times where things were um, unfortunately very separated for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like we got very polarized, and uh, you know, I think that was unfortunate. I think now, with perspective, it all seems kind of silly. But I remember at the time living through it; it was very real. That you know, you could listen to these bands, but you couldn't listen to these bands, and oh, yeah. you know, everything was very separated. So well, I think uh, I, I was never I was never indie, so the, there was always this indie mentality that was more that way to me. I listened right. to everything, you know. I, I, what, if I liked it, I listened to it. I didn't I didn't care if 
it was on a major label or an indie label or anything like that. Right. That's not unlike I'm reading the um, Bob Mould's biography right now. And he made a point of like when they jumped from SST to Warner Brothers, he didn't look at it as he was betraying the indie alternative underground. He looked at it as this this label can only do so much for us and we want to be able to play more places and we don't want, you know, if we make a thousand dollars at the door, we don't want the guy pulling a gun on us and saying, you're not getting your money tonight. We want to have a label backing us up and giving us guarantees and stuff like that. So, but yeah, I, I can totally see how he would have been sort of at a crossroads. I mean, he, he says he was at a crossroads with his decision making. And I'm sure that that's, you know, a lot of artists went through that jumping from smaller labels to, to the majors when there were a lot of majors. We don't really, it doesn't really happen anymore, but. Well, uh, speaking of from small to big, <laughs> track six, you know, a, a, a Seattle guy ta- uh, singing a song titled Hollywood. Uh, oh. What's the story behind that song? And, and one of the things about it that for me that, that makes it really unique is the amount of echo. <laughs> Where did that come from? And, you know, was there any point when you, uh, did you record it, you know, kind of straight uh, without all that effect on it? No, I think, I think we, it was recorded in, the, in our rehearsal studio. Oh, okay. And we were getting this big drum sound out of there. And I, I, I can't remember. I, it just always had lots of effects on it. And, and uh, it's just what it was. It was just a big kind of creepy yeah. thing. You know? Well, it's because the echo adds a lot of um, feel to it and ambience. And mm-hmm. you can tell, like, mm-hmm. vocally, like, you're kind of singing off the echo a little bit. So it was interesting to try to figure yeah, out like, yeah. were you performing with the echo on or was that something that yeah. you guys just added at the end? Yeah, so, I would have had that. I would have had the echo on. Very cool. I was doing it. Yeah. The next song, that's actually one of my favorite songs on the record because it's so different. It has a saxophone, which I think in 1994, I don't know that there was another song recorded that had a saxophone <laughs> on it. Cause the saxophone <laughs> was kind of, was kind of outlawed in the nineties. I think, <laughs> but it it has like this Marvin Gaye "What's Going On" kind of vibe yeah. to it. Was it, is that? It, am I in the right know, ballpark? Yeah, and that's why we liked it. But I'll tell you, we could never recreate it. You know, it, it we were capturing things in our studio in our rehearsal space. You know, that were just we were just capturing moments, and and that was a moment that you know when we were taken said, Hey, you're going to really do the record now in a studio. We, you know, we couldn't recreate it. We weren't, we're not, you know, that we captured something like, this is different. This sounds like, yeah, like Marvin Gaye, it's got this feel to it. And, and so, but it's not a feel that we, I would say that we are able to conjure up, you know, again, like, I mean, I, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of got this thing that we captured that is not really, I don't want to say beyond our abilities because we actually did it, but it's like sometimes when you improv something, like it's mostly improv, uh, uh, it's probably part of a jam, and uh, at least the music. So sometimes those types of things are, you capture things that that are really difficult to like recreate and, and to recreate the ambiance. You know, when we went into the studio to do some of this stuff over, it was like we didn't have that ambiance anymore. We lost the big weird room we were in that was real you know you know echoey and everything got all tight
song that is just it happened and the whole picture with uh, the painting of it the, uh, it's one of the ones where I say you know a major label wouldn't have, wouldn't have known what to do with that or wanted on a record it's just kind of so I don't know <laughs> it, it, it sounds like a we're in the studio we have all this gear set up let's just jam for a while it doesn't sound like something you would be like alright let's write parts for this song ahead of time and then go into the studio it sounds much more of the moment than like Tasted or some of the other songs on the record. But of course, but of course I don't know, the, uh, that's the way uh, what's going on in some of those Marvin Gaye records were done. They just started playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's the same. It's, the, it's like we captured a little ghost of that. I mean, it happens a lot in, in jams and uh, satchels a lot where it's just magnificent things will happen that we can't that fly by while you're jamming Man, if you could harness it, great. But boy, tough. Well, I think that describes this album overall pretty well. Is that you know, there's all of these special moments that happen, and you really have to, you know, there's times where where it wanders, but there's times where, out of nowhere, you know, things lock lock together and the right uh, chemistry happens, and you you yeah. hear it, and there's a couple yeah. lines where you're like, oh my god, that's awesome, and then it sort of loosens yeah. up again and changes. Yeah. And, yeah. So. And that doesn't happen very much anymore. It seems like with the uh, with the way that records are made now, like everything is no. so pre-thought and, and pre-programmed. And well, and and you know, when we went in to do the next record, we didn't have that anymore. You know, we had lost that whatever we had, the innocence. Mm-hmm. And so the family's very different. Oh yeah, it it almost sounds like a different. I, it's it's much more song oriented, whereas this seems to be much more feel oriented. Yeah, where it's yeah. So you know, I. I I buckled, you know, we had a stone produced it, and I buckled down and wrote some songs, you know, because I wanted some songs. And we were more, the label was more involved in terms of wanting to know it, that it's going to be good. For track eight, Mr. Pink, one of the mm-hmm. one of the Reservoir Dog titles, it starts out and the name Chelsea comes up. Mm-hmm. Was that a reference to, is that actually, is this one of, like, a, a reference to somebody, or was it a, just a, a, a name that sounded good? Well, that's someone that I had a thing for that whole summer in the making of the record, and uh, it was sort of a muse for a lot of the sort of yearning that's on the album. <laughs> yearning is good for rock and roll. You know, like, like <laughs> uh-oh, and, and, you know, that that just, and Hollywood, those were, that was a yearning, there was a wounded animal type of vibe going on there that makes that the album really stamped onto my soul in a way that others aren't necessarily.
playing guitar on this song? Yeah, yeah I play the more mo- mo- uh, melodic stuff. Okay. Because, Jay, you mentioned something about the what you thought was going on with the guitar. Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, the guitar approach is almost like you would play an organ. Like the, mm-hmm. the chords are really, they hold out and it's more on the backbeat. Is, is keyboard and, and piano your first instrument? And you sort of find yourself playing guitar as if from the from the standpoint of a keyboard player or a piano player? Well, I don't know. I mean, the main riffs and everything, the big held stuff, that's, uh, that was our guitar player. Oh, okay. But it's it's uh, symptomatic of the drop D tuning and the way it was played. So it's just, you really just hit the chord and it just hangs. Mm-hmm. And it's just a... That was kind of the satchel style. And for a lot of it's because of the way Regan plays drums, and he plays kind of backwards. Leg, you know, he's playing behind. You know, he's leading with his kick foot. You know, and so most of that feel is. Yeah, his drumming is it's very uh, huge part of this this album. I mean, you can definitely mm-hmm. tell that uh, his style, his confidence to be able to play in slower tempos and mm-hmm. be able to fill in the space. I mean, I know. Yeah playing drums myself a little bit that that is very hard to do um, yeah he's a lot of people comment like drummers really yeah. good drummers comment on his ability to play slow is, is rare yeah <laughs> yeah it's pretty it's pretty remarkable it's it's one of the things that makes this album you know really really special i think is that uh you don't hear a lot of albums where you know you can maintain tempos you know in a slower area but still keep the songs super you know really interesting and they just have so such a great feel to them um, especially, I mean, I know we're talking about EDC, but especially that that first Brad album as well. I mean, yeah. the, the rhythm yeah. parts on that album are just amazing. Yeah, you can't take him out of Brad or Satchel. It just it, it would be a, another band. Right. They don't exist without me or him. So. Absolutely. Track nine, uh, built for it. You're singing in a lot of falsetto in this song. When did you figure that out in terms of your songwriting or your your singing progression? Because falsetto is not something that a lot of people, they didn't do it then. And even the people that do it now don't necessarily even do it right. Was that something that in in terms of singing along to Prince songs when you were learning his songs that you sort of figured out? Or was it when you got more confidence? Because it's it's kind of a, even though you're singing high, you're actually like kind of singing, it's, it's like you're backing the vocal down almost to a whisper at sometimes mm-hmm. which is kind of bold especially for the song gets kind of heavy at, at parts mm-hmm. when did that sort of come in to your singing repertoire well it came from prince uh and maybe i was also into earth wind and fire so well philip bailey in there some of it comes from me not being at the time not being able to sing that high in my lower register and uh i just would do that I, and you know in fact when Stone was producing a family record, he uh, talked to me about not singing falsetto. So, <laughs> <laughs> really, see if I could sing more things in my because I guess I did a lot of falsetto on uh, the first Brad record, maybe too, a little bit. I can't yeah, remember. but uh, yeah, yeah, there's some choruses in that, but uh, it's kind of like a crutch I went to, maybe in a way, yeah, and uh. I don't do it as much now. It's really hard to do live, so I try to do things that I can actually do live. And falsetto doesn't really cut through the, the noise, you know. Speaking of the the Brad album, the track ten, Mr. Blue, 
that sort of shares a, I guess, a similar sound with Rockstar from yeah. the Brad album. Was were they written around the same time, or is, was there some sort of connection between those songs? No, and I didn't have anything to do with Blue. That was oh. uh, uh, Regan and John and Corey's thing. <laughs> That's their their explore their exploration. Because I was going to um, ask you so, if you if you remember anything about making the song, and that would be a no. No, I, no, I don't <laughs> think I played a note on it. I don't think. Do you think any of those guys remember anything about making the song? Well, I think they remember making it. I don't think they <laughs> yeah. play it. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't even comment on it. But no, Rockstar is <laughs> a different sound at this time. <laughs> okay. I should have said no comment. <laughs> <laughs> So, so for the record, Mr. Blue is is an album. It's an album track. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Excellent. Uh, track eleven starts out with the Reservoir Dogs um, sample, where they mention mm-hmm. Satchel of Diamonds. Is that where the mm-hmm. was the the band already named, or what, did they did the name come from that line? Uh, the band was already named. Ninety nine percent sure, but I I would guess that that was something though that. They went, hey, that's Satchel. I could be wrong. Yeah, maybe maybe we didn't have a name because we had another name and then we had to change it. And so I'm not really sure when we changed it. We, it could have been taken from that, but I think we were, you know, buying weed or something and calling, you know, <laughs> 40 back Satchels. Because I, I, I think that's where it came from. One of the guys had, you know, who's got the Satchel? I, that's it, not in the that official bio. Came, what's that? <laughs> That's not no. in the official bio. <laughs> no. See, this is the kind of stuff when we get the band history from Wikipedia that we don't get. Yeah, yeah no. exactly. <laughs> tell, tell the truth, man. <laughs> this sounds um, like uh, the, there's an Ebo on this or something. Like there's some huge guitar yeah, sustain going on. Is it Willow? Yeah. Yeah, Will- Willow. Yeah, yeah. Willow? Yeah, that's uh, Ebo, I believe. Okay. I, this might be one of the songs that caused a lot of... Uh, me and my friends to go out and get Ebos and make a lot of really awful sounds oh, really? with them. <laughs> <laughs> How's he doing that? I don't know. And then you just you know screw around with it for a while and, and nothing. You, you can't reproduce what you what you heard. It also sounds like there's some other instruments in this song that are not on the rest of the record. It's is there a cello or some sort of a stringed instrument on this record? Or are we just hearing some sort of a keyboard on it? I don't know. I don't know. I would have to listen. I haven't listened to it. It could be bells in there or something. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't really remember. There might be. There was some pump organ at the studio. Maybe it's. Maybe there's something like that in there. Uh, that could be it. There's yeah. some like really, really lightly played either acoustic guitar or banjo that's like underneath everything. That's really cool.
like one of those songs like the more you listen to it and I, the better speakers that you have you start to hear all kinds of yeah. different things you didn't hear the first time which is pretty cool yeah cool track 12 uh the roof almighty again this is another song with lots of effects i'm wondering does that affect your choices for what you're going to play live because you guys are like you said you're playing tomorrow which tomorrow this comes out on next tuesday so it'll actually be last week when, when we put this out does that affect what songs you guys put in the set list based on if they're heavily affected and you can't necessarily do that live or do you just ignore that I, yeah it all depends on how hard they are to play really uh like the roof almighty you know i think we, we've played it just dry i mean I, I i just that was my mix i just did a crazy mix of it Gotcha. It's sort of like like an octave octave effect or something on your voice that's going on. It almost sounds like yeah. there's two of you, but there's not really. Yeah, so, Evan Tide. Uh, okay. Uh, effects boxes. Like ah, Steve yes. I uses. And then the last song, <laughs> yeah. Um, last song is the one that you mentioned when we started out, which is "Suffering." So this wasn't originally intended to be on the album, is what you're saying? Is that basically they heard the record and were like. No, demos were being, you know, the demos were being sent. And okay. And there was, you know, Mr. Pink and Mr. Brown and Tasted, and it was just the guy was, conf- you know, our, I mean, our guy was confused by what he had signed, and, which I didn't understand on any level. Like, what the fuck? No, you know, I look back and go, God, you know, of course he was confused. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it's a diverse um, album. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, suffering almost really. We played it once, and then no one wanted to play it again. And then, you know, there was talk like it wouldn't be on the album, and I just kind of quietly kept it on, pushed it on there. You know, maybe the other guys would say different, but it, it wasn't like they were jumping for joy for it. I don't know why. Maybe I, you know, uh, is it too ballad oriented for them? Were they worried that it was too? You know, it's a lot of the album when you have slower songs. There's when there's piano, there's you know, trouble come down has uh, effects on it, and and Roof Almighty was it just not like messed up enough for them? I don't know. I think there's something about it that isn't wasn't supernatural, um, not supernatural, but wasn't very natural for everyone. There's some lilt in it or something that the band it, it wasn't there yet as a band maybe to play it. I mean, they played it the one time when we recorded it, and then it just seemed like there was always kind of bickering about it. Uh, hmm. So, um, so, but it became perform- a main. You know, it's a it's a mainstay, but you know, it, it, it had its early beginnings. It was questioned. I so you're saying the performance of this was like kind of a one-off? Yeah. Like the recording. The, wow. The recording on the record, yeah, was from a, a one of our first uh, pre-production when we were with the producer who came up and cut some songs. Wow. Because huh. there's a really See, I- cool uh, dynamic that happens, like. 
you all you, you kind of gradually build through the verse and then you kind of release and you go quiet and you build again and i don't know that's the kind of thing that I guess playing in a band, maybe it does make sense that that's the kind of thing like you can nail early on, but the more you play the song, <laughs> it actually becomes harder yeah. to, to can you continue to do that because everybody keeps wanting to like yeah. speed up or well, play yeah. harder. Yeah, when it's fresh, I mean, I still am capturing certain, you know, not everyone's like that too. Regan's kind of a drummer. If you catch him early, you, you capture more of the, sometimes him making decisions is what sounds cool, like, you know, him making mm. new decisions dynamically doing things that once you start to really practicing maybe it's harder to recreate yeah he's you know heads and tails above what he was then overall now he's 20 years back then you know we were just capturing what we could capture and sometimes the more we played it it just didn't get better you know lose the spontaneity and the kind of magic of it listen to an angel sing Listen to the joy it brings Huddled underneath the cloud I would just shout out loud Why do I suffer so? Why do I want to go? And don't show me that disguise Until you learn the meaning of truth things about suffering that i wanted to ask was um personally how i how i came to know of satchel was you know i was aware of brad and i got the brad record and was really you know obviously right off the bat a fan of your voice but at this time you know it's the early 90s it's really hard to get information about bands and what other bands these people are in you can just go to google and search um and i remember going to see the movie beautiful girls and i'm sitting there watching the movie and all of a sudden the voice that I was so, you know, awed by comes on during this movie. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I know this voice and I, you know, sort of, you know, did the investigation and figured out, okay, this is the same singer from Brad and Beautiful Girls came out, what, two or three years after EDC. How did that song end up on that soundtrack? If I'm not mistaken, was Greg Dooley from Afghan Wigs the music supervisor on that? Or he helped, he helped there, do the, that? Right, they're probably in the movie and yeah. There's they have a song on the on the soundtrack too. I think they have a couple covers. Yeah, I think yeah. I think he was involved in putting that soundtrack together, and so he was. We were friends, and he was a big fan of that song. So I think he even took a lyric for one of his songs from it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I was going to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I, that was my lyric first. He called me. <laughs> Right, 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 right. And I think he, yeah, got it wrong too. But he, he, <laughs> anyways, that's that's where that, I think that's where that came from. And probably the movie was put together. You know, the the music was being put together way before the movie came out. So, right, because I don't remember okay. it being that long after '94 that 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 was starting to be talked about. 
but it was a great placement. Yeah, it, it was it was really cool. And it sort of led me down to, you know, a, to be a fan of your career, basically, and be able to follow it, like piece together, okay, the guy in the Brad is in Satchel, and then I could sort of follow yeah. from that point forward. So it was, yeah, it was cool. It also, I think, I discovered uh, Holland Maggie because of that soundtrack too, which was a oh yeah, yeah. We're both we're from Columbus, so we're fans of that band okay. now. But uh, yeah. and ha- Happy's in you know Happy Chichester's in Brad. He is. Yeah, he's a he's a side guy. He's not like, but he's been playing with us for live for ten years, and so you'll you'll be seeing him on. Uh, we're going to be putting out a lot of stuff on YouTube of uh, live takes in the studio and stuff. And, a lot of happy oh wow that's awesome he's my go-to he's played on my solo records and he's uh he's fantastic this would be a good time to mention that there's a new song up if you go to thebandbrad.com there is a new track which is actually now is that you guys playing the song live and it being recorded in while you're playing it or is that yeah. you guys basically playing? Okay. Yeah, there's a there was some controversy because the, we did some editing from different takes of that day, but I don't know what's wrong with that. Some fans wrote in. <laughs> it doesn't look live. It looks like, like come on, man. We had one camera. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, we got a whole. We did a whole bunch, like ten or twelve or something, other songs uh, for the new record that we're going to be putting out uh, live shots of. Because we got together so and did a whole bunch of the songs live, and a couple of the takes made it to the record. So is cool. this version of Water's Deep going to be the one that's on the record? Oh, Water's Deep's cool. not going to be on the record. So Really? Yeah. What? <laughs> we love that it. song. It wasn't wow. How's that possible? I don't know. You'll have to hear the new album. All right. Wow. That sets expectations high, because that is like, that song, when I, when I saw that, I was completely blown away. I oh, thought that's it was great. That's that's really good to hear. And, and and I think it made it extra special the the video concept of just seeing you guys play it. It just yeah. I don't know. There's just a grittiness to it that I didn't I didn't know the band. Um, it, it's just another aspect of the band that I didn't know existed. There's just a heavy and a grittiness to it, but it's still within character. I think of what yeah it, you know what what we think of as Brad, but it's just a different side of it that uh yeah. so but it's not going to be on the record then. No. Wow. But, okay. uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about the other stuff we filmed because then we got together and filmed a, a whole bunch of stuff and lots of great outtakes and the guys learning stuff. And it's really cool. It's really exciting um, that we got to capture all this stuff. So Happy appears on the, on the record and in the videos. Yeah, he played on, uh, well, the three songs he played live that made the record, he uh, is in the, yeah, in the film. Cool. Oh, yeah, he's not in Water's Deep. Usually right. he comes up, so he's not in that. I forgot. So, EDC, it's 18 years since that's been released. Does it sound different now than when it did? Um, in terms of, you know, at the time it sounded... It was probably one of the most unique records I had heard. I think I was with Jeff. I discovered it because of the song and the soundtrack, and I remember listening to it and being kind of blown away. But now I hear it... And I do hear those, like Jay was mentioning, like and and you mentioned, like Allison Chains, mm-hmm. on some of the riffs and stuff like that. And it doesn't sound as separated from what was going on as I initially thought. Do do you right. sort of hear more of a connection to what was going on then than you did then? 
well, I think so. I mean, I you know we play you know Mr. Brown and Mr. Pink and More Ways Than Three and Taste are kind of the big rock numbers. Uh, we play those all the time, and they're super fun to play. They have these huge riffs in them, mm. and. You know, we were using Drop D, Soundgarden is using, you know, there's elements, yeah, I hear in there. We were just weird, a little bit weirder, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. It seems like both of the, the debut records from both Brad and Satchel are like the weirder records, and it seems like on the second albums, they became much more streamlined. And with the second Satchel album has a lot more, it's a lot more piano focused, I think. And whereas the second yeah. Brad album is a lot more guitar riff yeah. focused. Yeah. Is that more well, of and, you playing guitar, uh, or was that Stone? No, it was, you know, you can also listen to the first Pigeon Head, which is super weird. So all mm-hmm. three of those are weird. And then the second Pigeon Head's way more together. And the second Satchel record, we were really on a, you know, it was more, the label was, you know, we had a producer, we had Stone and, and this guy Matt Wallace, who did the big uh, big records with Mike Patton, what's that band? Faith uh, No More? You know, yeah, Faith no they more. did the big. Yeah. yeah, this guy did the big Faith No More record, and so, and he was like, you know, he went home at midnight or eleven, and you know, he just was a producer, and it was more, you know, the songs had to be together, and I was the only one that was writing any songs, and I wrote them all on piano, and there was a few other ones brought in, one rock one, you know, just no, you know, our guitar player John just wasn't bringing stuff in. You know, he didn't, and we'd lost that thing we had. Our clubhouse, had, we'd lost it to, you know, it got tore down. And we kind of lost that home base where, that we'd had. And, and then for interiors, and again, it was a label was involved and it hadn't been before. And, you know, no one wanted to make a record that, you know, more commercial. We didn't have to work that hard at doing anything different than we normally do. It just was recorded slicker, you know, and, and loose ends were tied up, you know, that, that would have been let loose and dangle before. You know, make sure you get your bridge and then you get to your chorus and things are tight. Right. And there's no Mr. Blue on those records. No, those weren't. No, there's no Mr. Blue, which, you know, I've had fans who say, man, I hate that song, Mr. Blue. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I don't think there's many Mr. Blue type songs on on album on anybody's albums anymore. No, you know, no. it's 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 all very. Uh, it, that's why I said it's, I don't it's remember. Nice. Maybe on my email, it's just, you know, it was amazing that we got uh, EDC put out by Epic Records. It just was not what you know they would have put out without Stone's involvement, because Stone came in and helped us finish it and do the final mixing and everything. It was kind of like an old story where they they let us have that one, you know. They let us huh. put that one out and let them do it. The R and R guy, Michael Goldstone, was completely didn't know what to do. So, well, I was well, just, I was just being free. We were just right. being free, and I, I felt like I should be allowed to do whatever I want. And luckily, I didn't know any better. So, I think one of the things that Jay and I have learned in over the over a year we've been doing this and. and getting into the history of various bands is that post Nirvana up until maybe like 96, 97, it seemed like there was a lot more leeway for bands getting signed. And, and for a couple years, you know, we talked about bands like Jawbreaker and Rocket from the Crypt that 
really didn't have a lot of commercial appeal, but got signed to huge advances yeah. and deals. And we listen to them now, and we're like, what were those people thinking? Like, this was a very niche band, and they were going to sell maybe 100,000 records, but they were getting signed to deals that, like, R.E.M. was getting. And well, they, yeah, the, the label, it, it was a little window. They signed everything, kind of like they scooped it all up, hoping throwing everything against the wall to see what would hit. You know, because they didn't, mm-hmm. you know, the industry didn't know if Nirvana was going to be big. I remember a discussion with someone, and it was like, they thought maybe it would go go cold, and from where I was sitting, from in the little hotbed world that I was sitting in, I was like, this, this fucking thing's going to sell a million records. Are you kidding me? When I heard Teen Spirit, I was like, kidding me, this is going to explode. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, I also knew that Katrina was going to be a disaster. And, uh, <laughs> I knew that Saddam <laughs> didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. So, you know, <laughs> Right, well, right, but right. but I really, you know, I, you know, I just knew, and the industry well, didn't. They didn't know. But then when it happened, because even the Geffen people, I guess, say, "Shit," because people said, "How did you market this thing?" Fuck, we just put it out, and then that single just took off like you know a rocket, like very few singles ever do. I think the cool. interesting thing on our end was that we were, you know, we were in college radio in the Midwest. We're we're at a station that is like ground zero for every band to send their cds and every label to send it so we're literally get we went from getting a box of cds a week for every label to getting a box per label of like right. 40 40 cds and you're and you have like seven people on a music staff and you're like how are we supposed right. to listen to all this music how are we supposed to even like figure out what we should be playing let alone what the good stuff is and you start relying on like cmj and and they're putting out yeah. the lists but it was i remember there was a definite increase where their labels were just going. I I had a friend in college who went to high school with a couple guys. They had a band. They were a three-piece, you know, kind of sounded like the second-generation Nirvana. They got $5,000 thrown at them by a guy from a record label just to have them record a demo. Like, I, I can't even imagine anybody doing that today, where it's just like, yeah. here's a check. Go, go record a demo. Let's hear what it sounds like. Yeah. Like, that, that yeah, well, was I, so specific to that time. Well, yeah. I think what's cool is that, I mean, Sean, you've you lived through that and now you're very much involved in sort of, you know, the current music landscape. I mean, you're active on Bandcamp. You're, you know, out there working. You don't, uh, you know, I don't sense that you have any plans of giving this up anytime soon. So what is your perspective on what it was like then and what it's like now? And is one better than the other? Well, I, being someone that really likes to do whatever I want and I, I, I like to just put out music whenever I can. I'm, I'm lucky because I have someone with money around me, so I'm able to, and it owns a studio, don't. So I'm afforded a lot of opportunities that uh, other people might not be. Um, but now, you know, people can do everything in their home and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's things about the old way that if I could jump back into my body and go back there, it would be fun, mm-hmm. you know, because to, to, I would have known how to utilize, you know, work the system more and, I don't know made some money you know maybe (laughs) that's the one thing i didn't really do but um i mean there there were there were good things about it you know getting a record deal and not very many people got them and and you got a big advance and you got to buy stuff and go to a studio and you got to trips to new york and and it was good times you know yeah good times and yeah and 
you don't get that as much now. You kind of, it's just everybody's doing it. Um, everybody's recording songs. Everybody's, everybody's everywhere. Um, I'm enjoying it right now. I love the Bandcamp thing. I just had a blast putting all my stuff up and doing it myself. I, you know, at the end of the day, though, you know, making a living is way more difficult. And uh, selling records, there's no record stores. There's, there's a, that whole aspect of it is really hard to deal with. You know, record stores, I, I just want to, you know, we have a couple here in Seattle, but I don't go to them. They're in kind of odd spots. It's not like the old days where, I don't know, I used to always go to record stores and walk around and look around, and I just sort of miss that. Mm -hmm. And then, and there's no, there's just no stores for your product to be sold. So you're trying to sell your records. You want, you want to sell records, and there's nowhere to sell them. Mm -hmm. Quality, of course, the whole quality issue where people are listening to it on bad systems and MP3s and the music mm -hmm. doesn't sound that great. And I've always been a had a nice stereo and I enjoy really high quality stuff. And when I make it, I get to listen on the best in the studio. You're listening to it on the best stereo you could buy almost. Sure. And uh, I get to enjoy that, but then it gets bumped down to the iTunes level, and I play it in my car when it gets to an MP3. It's like, man, it takes a dive. And yeah. There's pluses and minuses to the whole thing, um, but people are making great music, anyways, right? Right. I mean, Absolutely. The main thing is songs, and I, you know, growing up, I just liked songs. It, it was I didn't buy that many albums, and I'm a song guy, so I love songs. And, you know, so many, I'd love people to listen to at my albums too, but if they like one song and that's all they like, it's cool too. Absolutely. Well, that's a good um, segue for us to talk about your albums and where they're available. You mentioned the Bandcamp. It's seansmith.bandcamp.com. You can get all of the solo releases, the Skeleton Keys albums that we talked about, and then there's all the, the albums the Diamond Hand and Shield of Thorns and the one that came out last year um, and the, e the Cedarwood EP. In addition to that, there's the Establishment Store where you can buy both the Satchel and Brad recent releases. Um, and then we mentioned the, the bandbrad.com where you can uh, check out the new song, which will not be on the record, but the new record comes out in April, you said? Yeah, new record in April and uh, yeah, lots of stuff coming up this year for Brad. Are you guys going to tour? Yeah, we're going to tour a little bit and I think re-release our catalog Excellent. and uh, stuff like that. We got all our stuff back from Sony, so we're going to re-release it. Maybe on vinyl? Yeah, vinyl's high priority. So. Excellent. Excellent. Everything will be on vinyl. And, and then I'll uh, cool. be available through the establishment store? No, I, I don't. I don't I, we, we, have a, we signed a deal with a, a record label called Razor and Tie. Okay. Yeah. It'll be going through some other channels. I I, I don't even know if the, is the establishment store still there. I haven't I haven't looked in a while. It was about five minutes before I I started the podcast. Okay. I want to make sure I had all okay. the links. Okay. Because you can but buy probably uh, there. And, yeah, it'll be iTunes and all that jazz. Excellent. Maybe when you put out the new when you re-release the stuff. I know there's a lot of B sides, especially for the Brad. Uh, yeah. Maybe re-release some bonus tracks. Yeah, that's what we're being stuff. asked. To, we're asked to do for the for the first two records and I just there wasn't I don't think there was any bonus tracks on Shame that was we had did that record in three weeks and that's just I'm pretty sure that's all there is and uh, 
interiors. I don't know. I think we already put up some east sides. I don't know where any of those things are, but we're looking. <laughs> Got to say thank you so much. We went a little long, but we really appreciate you joining us. This was really one of the best episodes we've done, being able to di- oh, right dissect dis- dissect the whole album and, and go through it track by track. Uh, I know everybody's going to be really excited when we get to put this out, um, which will be on uh, February 7th would be the uh, day. Right. I believe that's that's next Tuesday. Yeah. So hey, Van thank Halen you. Comes out. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea how excited I am about that. Oh, I'm too. totally am, geeking out. I am too. I'm going to get it and put it in my car and turn it up. And yeah. just hope it. <laughs> I, I, all I've been doing for the last two weeks is just like scouring the internet trying to listen to samples of that record. Oh, yeah. The first song I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. But I have to admit, it was um, way catchier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So I like listened to it one time, and I'm like, I don't know. And then I found myself throughout the day like singing the song and like knowing all the lyrics, and I'm horrible with lyrics. So yeah. I was like, oh, maybe it's better than I thought. And then some of the samples have started to come out, and the samples yeah. are really, really good. And That's it almost great. makes you wonder, like, what were they thinking releasing that song? in the first place yeah. because uh, yeah. the rest of the That's stuff is like... That's what I was like... thinking when, Sound, when Soundgarden released Spoon Man on their first... I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That throw is out, a weird song. Yeah, throw out something. Well, it has spoons on it. Tested. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> it was great talking good... to you guys. Yeah, time. man, thanks a lot. Yes, thank you. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. To learn more about tonight's guest, visit www.seansmithsinger.com for links to music and news updates. Follow Sean on Twitter at TheSeanSmith. That's T-H-E-E, Sean Smith. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. Digmeout.